uh, we are recording, so if you're not here, if you miss a night, you can catch it up. Okay, so um, if you weren't at our la- at Theology 101 last semester, this is something I, I try to say every time, is that if you have a question, don't be afraid to ask it. This is a time where we're going to have some back and forth, and you can ask questions, and, and I'll answer, and, um, and so... So don't be afraid to ask questions. We want to walk through things and wrestle through things. And glory, but it was obvious she did not agree with what he had said. Dan was uncomfortable about the way things were going and sought to resolve the situation. So he said, maybe what we are experiencing is, in, is an indication of the richness of the Bible. It can mean so many things. Maybe you have been in a Bible study before and you've just opened up the Bible and started reading and noticed how maybe everyone thought it meant something different. Um, If somebody wants to shut those doors, I wouldn't be upset about it. Um, So maybe you've been in a Bible study where that's happened to you, where everybody kind of said something different. I think it means this, or I think it means that. Um, And you might have even had people before say, well, the Holy Spirit has showed me, or I believe the Holy, or God has shown me this is what it means. Everyone, no matter if you've ever heard the word hermeneutics or not, reads the Bible with a hermeneutic, if you will. Everyone comes to the Bible with an already perceived hermeneutic. By that I mean you approach the text, you approach the Bible with a certain set of rules and ideas that guide and interpret what it means. The question isn't whether you use, or you, whether you do hermeneutics, the question is whether you do good or bad hermeneutics. Um, are they thought out or are they unclear? So before we go much further, I want you I want to understand a little bit of uh, where this word comes from and what it means. Uh, so you heard me say a couple times in service that the origin of the word hermeneutics comes from the Greek god Hermes. Hermes, the son of Zeus and Maya, um, was the fastest of all of the Greek gods. And his position amongst the gods was um, he was the messenger. He was the messenger from Zeus to all the other gods and to people. He was the divine herald, and he was believed in Greek society to to be the inventor of language and speech. And so as Hermes was the messenger of the gods to humanity, his name became associated with understanding the voice of the gods, the word of the gods, or interpreting or understanding the gods. That's why it's so interesting in Acts 14, 12, Paul and, uh, uh, and Barnabas are in Lystra, and Paul heals someone. Um, he heals this crippled man. And it's interesting what, what they say in Acts 14, 12. Uh, the people said that they thought the gods had come to visit them. They thought Barnabas was Zeus, and they called Paul Hermes. And why did they call Paul Hermes? Because he was the chief speaker. because He spoke for the gods. So it's from this idea that we get this uh, English word hermeneutics from Hermes. Um, We see the Greek word used several times in the New Testament, Luke 24, 27. uh, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted, or the Greek word hermeneunum, it's a hard one to say, hermeneuin, interpreted to them all in the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus showed the disciples, here is how you are supposed to read the Bible. All right? So Jesus basically was telling them, you've been reading the Old Testament wrong. You've missed it. It's all about me. And so he takes them through Moses, the law, and the prophets. 
and shows them all the things concerning himself. Here's the problem, I think. We like to look at the Bible, and we like to think that the Bible is this love letter from God. And so we should be able to open it, and all of its richness should overflow into us as we read it, and it should be easy because God gave this to us, but it's not. It's not the case. The Bible is a book that was written over the course of 1,500 years in three different languages, two of which are nothing like English. Um, And it was written in different cultures, different societies that are very different from our Western society. And so the Bible is incredibly difficult to read. So if you have said before, I have a hard time reading the Bible because it's difficult, you're in good company because it is difficult. It is hard. Um, So let, let me tell you this. The Bible is hard to read. So let me give you an example. In the tabernacle, it was sectioned off into five sections. In the tabernacle, there were five curtains, and it had five pillars, and at the entrance, there were five sockets of brass that marked the entrance to the holy place. The Ten Commandments were on two tablets with five commandments on each tablet. Five is an important number to God. And so when David goes down to face Goliath, And he picks up five stones. If you were a Jewish person, this would have meant something to you. You would have known that it was a symbol that David trusted God because he picked up five stones uh, and not four. That is terrible hermeneutics. That is terrible hermeneutics. See, sometimes what happens is we just find things in the Bible that seem to, oh, there's a lot of fives, a lot of sevens. And so we, we can make things up. You'll hear preachers in books talk about they've unlocked the Bible or the Bible code, right? And, and they've got all of these magic formulas and how they've unlocked the secrets of the Bible. And they'll show you all of these things. But it is quite possible to put a lot of things together in the Bible that aren't meant to go together. And so that's terrible hermeneutics. So we don't want to do that. So we want to have good, thoughtful hermeneutics. So the first lesson, our lesson for tonight, is who makes up the rules? Who determines who makes up the rules? There are three components or three elements that must be present in order to have written communication. If we're going to have written communication, three things must be there. You must have an author, you must have a text, and you must have a reader. Now, if the main goal of interpreting the Bible is understanding the meaning of the text, then we must know from which of these three components does the meaning originate. Who decides what the meaning is? Is it the author, is it the text, or is it the reader? Some would argue that the text determines the meaning, that the words themselves determine the meaning. They would argue that the biblical text's meaning is completely independent from what the author meant when he or she wrote it. Because they would say the text is an art. And that the original composer no longer possesses control over the art. It possesses its own meaning apart from its author. If in some way, Paul, the author of the book of Romans, showed up to us right now and said, uh, you all have misunderstood what I meant in Romans chapter 8. I actually meant this. Proponents of this view could say, well, Paul, that's really interesting, but quite irrelevant. 
It's really interesting, but quite irrelevant. It doesn't matter what you thought it meant, Paul. But Paul's willed meaning of the text, what Paul sought to communicate in his writing, in this view, is no more authoritative than any other person's interpretation. What Paul says doesn't matter. So this would mean that for for us to go and read the book of Galatians to say, let's understand Paul a little better by reading the book of Galatians and, and Philippians so we might understand Romans a little better, that wouldn't make any sense because to understand Paul doesn't help us to understand the text because the meaning's in the text, not what Paul meant. So here's a problem with that view. A text is simply the collection of letters or symbols written down. A text is an inanimate object. It cannot think or do anything on its own. Meaning, on the other hand, is the product of reasoning and thought. It is something only people can do. Meaning, what something means is something only people can can decide to do, can make it mean something. A text, the words, can only convey meaning. It cannot produce meaning. It can convey it, it cannot produce it. Only the author and readers of texts can think, and so the meaning must come from one of them. Okay, does that make sense? You all track with me? Okay. I know this is a little confusing, but this is important. So the second is, can the reader, as you read the Bible, can you determine the meaning? Can you decide what the meaning is? think this is probably our natural position. I think it's probably our natural position that most people hold this position probably without really thinking about it. That we come to the biblical text and we determine what it means. Because you may have said something like this before. You may have said, you know, I really get this out of this passage. You know, this passage really means a lot to me because it really says this to me. It speaks this to me. Or to me, this verse means this. You might have heard someone say, the Bible is so rich that you can come to the Bible, to the same passage that you read years ago, and come to it again, and it means something completely different to you at that moment, five years later. Does that make sense? You've probably said that or thought that or had someone say that to you. Like, I read this one passage when I, you know, five years ago, and, and I read it again today, and it means something completely different. And while true, it might affect you differently or might, you might have grown in your understanding of its meaning or there might be an implication or application, which we'll talk more about in a minute, that might be revealed to you, the meaning cannot change. So if you think that the reader interprets or unveils or discovers the meaning, that if the reader creates the meaning, One verse, according to this view, could have multiple meanings. Even one reader could interpret one text in multiple ways. It could mean one thing for Ron and another thing for me and another thing for Jan and another thing for Nikki. And those would all be the meaning because it is up to me to decide what the meaning is for me. It's very postmodern, right? It's my truth. This view kind of functions like an ink blot. Y'all, y'all, y'all have seen ink blot tests in TV shows and movies and stuff, right? Like a psychiatrist will say, "Tell me the first thing that comes to your mind," and they'll hold up this ink blot, and and they'll say, it'll look like nothing, and they'll go, "Oh, that makes me think of balloons or whatever. Makes me think of my mother or something." 
right? And it's like, how did you get that out of that bing bot? Um, but everyone else looks at it and sees something else. You see birds and you see balloons and you see your mom. But the authority for the meaning in the text in this view lies with the reader. So we come to a passage, say like in Ephesians 5, you know that passage where it talks about we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. So I could read this verse and say, you know what, I really feel like those powers and the powers of darkness are really the political powers in Washington, D.C. Amen? Close. And so I can read that and think, you know what, I think those, the, the powers of darkness are, are, you know, the political powers in Washington. And, and that um, God's going to give me one. Or if I want to score that touchdown, um, and, you know, because I believe in Christ, it doesn't mean I'm going to do that. So in the context, what Paul is talking about is contentment. And so what he is telling you is that you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength, meaning you can be content. And so I think that in the context is exactly what he's talking about. And so it's, it really means there may be some implications, and that's what we're going to talk about in a minute is how do we get implications from a text where it means something for present day. But the meaning of that is you, God will give you the power to be content whatever life situation you're in. Does that make sense? Tracking? Any questions, thoughts? We'll, have to, we'll dig into that passage some more. I think that'll be really interesting. So we'll actually pull up the context and read that some more. That'd be good. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. And we're going to have a whole, I'm going to, we're actually going to have a whole section on that. Um, there, there's really two probably opinions on that. Um, oh, the question is, thank you, Nate. The question is, do you have to have the Holy Spirit to interpret the Bible? Uh, there's two opinions. Um, I'm going to tell you, I think, I think my position is no. Um, I'll, give, I'll give you an example. There was a um, German scholar who read all of the Bible, who read Paul particularly, and he was a Pauline scholar, scholar on Paul, and he gave this lecture on justification by faith alone, and it was beautiful. He got everything right. I mean, he understood Paul and what he was saying. He understood justification. He understood about faith alone. He understood Pauline theology and gave this beautiful lecture on what Paul meant in all of his biblical writings. And at the end of the lecture, he said, but we know all of this is rubbish. <clears throat> and so, my position would be, um, you can understand the Bible without the Holy Spirit, but you can't believe it without the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit does a work of applying and like softening the heart so that we actually believe it in and, and, and like obey it. But there's a couple positions on that and we're gonna dig into that a little more. That's a good question. Other questions? So the question is, let me make sure I understand the question. Are you saying, can a person with a learning? Yeah, so can a, per, make sure I get this right. Can a person with a learning disability understand the Bible? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So I would say, um, so the, can a person with a reading disability or something like that understand the Bible? I would say probably, um, you don't have to read to learn, right? So someone else can explain the same concepts to you. Um, but I would say probably, um, is if, if, if you're just limited to reading yourself, then your ability to uh, 
unearthed truth is going to be limited by the amount of reading limited t- limitation you have. Now, someone can speak to you and, and teach you those things, and, and you can get around that. Um, but I, what I don't think happens is like this supernatural, somehow the spirit you know, imparts information to you apart from your own brain getting it. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Anything else? All right. So, um, meaning does not come from the text, the words itself. It does not come from the reader. So, where must it come from? It comes from the author. It comes from the author. The meaning of a text lies with the author and what he consciously, that's an important word, consciously, intended to say in his writing. So the meaning of the book of Romans is what Paul, the author, intended, that he meant to communicate to his readers at the time he wrote the letter. So this view says that if Paul were alive today and he came in this room and told us what he meant when, to convey in writing the book of Romans, it would settle the issue. Say, if we all had a disagreement on what a certain passage meant, and Paul said, here's what I meant, issue settled. That's what Paul meant, that's what the meaning is. There would be no room for arguing over it. There would be no, well, Paul, are you sure? Because I really think you were trying to say this, or I really think this is what it means. No, Paul meant this, that's what it means. This is why this, it is helpful when trying to understand Romans we go to read the book of Galatians. We go to read Philippians. We go read Ephesians. Because the more we understand Paul and his theology, the more it helps us to understand the book of Romans. Does that make sense? Okay, let me give you a an, an, uh, contemporary equivalent kind of il- illustration or, or situation. The Constitution of the United States of America. There is a great debate and argument of where we must derive meaning from the Constitution. Do we interpret the Constitution from the intent of the original framers or writers, the founding fathers, when they wrote the Constitution? Do we understand the Constitution to mean what they meant at the time in 1776? Or, as others argue, that the current Supreme Court judges can determine the meaning of the Constitution apart from the intent of the original framers of the Constitution. <laughs> so you have this debate, originalist versus, I don't know what the other one's called. Luke, when he writes the book of Acts, writes to uh, Theophilus. And what Luke was trying to say to Theophilus is exactly what the book means today. Does it mean something different because we're smarter now or something? However, What the biblical authors willed to say in the past about past things may also have implications for today, of which that author was not aware. All right, so this is is where this is going to get interesting for us. So Paul could have been writing something, and he meant this one thing in this time and that place, and that meaning cannot change. However, the things Paul was writing, he had no idea what the future was going to hold. And some of the things that he was writing and, and God was using have implications that he was not aware it would be an implication for, okay? Let me give you an example. Ephesians 5, 18. Do not get drunk on wine. Okay, Paul said, do not get drunk on wine. Tell me, what is the meaning of the text? Just the meaning. Somebody. 
Don't get drunk on wine. It's pretty easy, right? So the, the meaning of the text is don't get drunk on wine. It's pretty straightforward. Now, there are present-day implications of this text, of which Paul was not thinking about when he wrote this, okay? All they really had was wine, and it was alcoholic, because you can get drunk on it. <laughs> That's always so funny to me when people argue that it was not alcoholic. It's like, then how could you get drunk on it? And so he says, don't get drunk on wine. He's saying, don't get drunk on wine. His, his, his meaning, what he thought about was drinking wine and getting drunk on it. Don't do it, okay? But there are present day implications of which Paul was not thinking about when he wrote this. What would some of those present day implications be for this verse? Don't get drunk on beer. Now, Paul didn't say beer. Now, could we take this verse and say, well, it's okay. We can't get drunk on wine, but we can get drunk on beer. Right? right? So you can't do that. So what would be another implication? Oh, we're going to get that. Okay. So, oh, man, y'all, y'all getting ahead of me. Okay, so this is interesting. So obviously, don't get drunk on vodka. Don't get drunk on whiskey. Don't get drunk on Kentucky bourbon. All right? Whatever. Or margaritas. Laura may like to talk about drinking margaritas one day. In heaven one day, we'll drink margaritas together, Lord. <laughs> so Paul gives this principle. Don't get drunk on wine. Implications are any alcohol. Don't get drunk on, don't, don't get drunk on any alcohol. Well, here's a question. Would it be a legitimate implication from this verse to suggest that taking a narcotic drug that have similar effects on the human body would also be prohibited. So could you understand this verse where he says, don't get drunk on wine to mean don't do meth. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yes. So true. I agree. I think all of those are legitimate implications of that verse. And we're also going to take some other verses that come along with that that talk about our body as a temple and, and other things about alcohol and how it affects the body. And so I think we can say, yes, does this verse mean don't get drunk on wine? Yes, that is the meaning. Only the meaning is only don't get drunk on wine. But the implications of some of that are beer, vodka, meth, cocaine. Don't do those things either because um, they affect you in, this, in a similar way. Yes, sir. Yeah, well, so, so, so w- this is where it gets difficult, right? So the, probably the most difficult part of interpreting the Bible, or one of them, is knowing what is a right implication of a text, a present-day implication of a text. So uh, here's, kind of my, here's how I would process this out loud. Alcohol, um, in moderation, he's not talking about that. Alcohol in moderation may affect you in a certain way, but drunkenness really affects you in such a way that now you have lost control of your inhibitions, right? Taking Tylenol does not make me lose control of my inhibitions. When I have my wisdom teeth taken out and I take some hydrocodone, I'm just sleeping, right? Um, So I would say, no, it's not talking about that. True. (laughs) But oxycodone is. 
But so, Rusty, you're, you're more better medicine guy than me, so you, you can speak to this. Um, but, but that's my first gut thought is if it affects you in a similar way that alcohol does where you lose control of your, of your body, then probably an issue. Um, but there also seems to probably be a, just a wisdom caveat of this is for medical, like I'm in the hospital and I'm going to die and I need to take this, right? Uh, and so, can you speak to some, Rusty? Not to put you on the spot or anything. Yeah, application, that's a good word. Reason for using it. But here's where it would get tricky. What about medical marijuana? I know, but it, it get, right. But just from a textual standpoint, it gets tricky. Because on the one hand, if you're saying it's okay for you to take whatever prescription jug that, you know, changes chemicals in your brain, helps you to relax, you know, anti-anxiety medicine or something like that, how do you say that's okay, but smoking weed for the same reason is not okay? That's tough. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, Paul even tells Timothy... He says, take a little wine for your stomach. Drink some wine for it. Make your stomach better. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yes, I think that is, that is the case. Um, <clears throat> so like I said, more often than not, the main concern of a text is to understand legitimate implications of the author's meaning of what that author meant and what might it imply for today. Well, that's why you're going to be in this class for another few weeks. <laughs> yeah, so that's why over the next few weeks we're going to begin to establish rules um, and guidelines and principles that help us navigate that. Because it, it, you're right, it's hard. Um, so in, in this case, it does seem like the pattern set by Paul um, prohibits things like drugs. Um, but Paul, when he wrote this, was not thinking about narcotics, right? He wasn't thinking about uh, heroin. However, this verse seems to indicate that it's not a good thing to take heroin either because that uh, gets you drunk in a sort of way. Um, so we have to be very careful and thoughtful about determining present-day implications. It is easy to get them wrong. So to understand the voice of God in the Scripture is to understand the conscious willed meaning of the human author. As we said, men wrote, to quote Timothy, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This does not mean that they were in this trance, right? And that, that God just overcome, over, like takes control of their bodies and takes control of their hand. This does mean that the Holy Spirit led them, guided them, taught them, brought things to their mind, supernaturally somehow wrote the very words of God without removing their will to write consciously. Consciously is important there because here are two errors I want to give you, two errors that happen in our thinking. The first is a little bit easier, and this is, there's some like um, liberal theologians who would say this. The original authors of the Bible at times were writing out of their 
subconscious. So I have said that they write out of their conscious thinking. Somehow, sometimes they write unconscious of future implications, right? Unconscious. But sometimes people say they write subconsciously, meaning they were not aware of the meaning they were writing in that moment. Okay, that's not true. Um, so, so these liberal theologians like to suggest that the miracles were not historical accounts written by these authors, that, they, that those were instead the subconscious thinking of the early church, and so they wrote these things but did not understand their meaning. That is not true. They, Paul wrote, Timothy, whoever wrote, wrote consciously, and he knew exactly what he meant when he penned, put pen to paper. But here's the other error in our interpretation. When, the other extreme. And you get, I'm being nuanced here, so you gotta track with me. The other error is the opposite extreme because the authors did will their intent and meaning consciously of the text. The thought then is, well, we need to interpret everything literally. Everything is literal because they knew exactly what they were saying. But the biblical authors used various types of literary forms. They used poetry, hyperbole, parables, metaphors, similes, so on and so forth, so on and so forth. So they did not intend for their readers to interpret those things literally. You don't read metaphors or parables literally. You don't read hyperbole literally. They intended them to be understood in light of the literary rules they used in writing. Does that make sense? When I write you a letter and I write a metaphor, I expect you to interpret it in light of the metaphor, not in a different way. Let me give you an example. Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. A literal interpretation says you must literally hate all those people. Now, is that what Jesus meant? Is that what Luke meant? You must hate your mother and father? How can you both hate your mother and father and honor your mother and father? It seems contradictory to scripture. It seems like Jesus is speaking in hyperbole, right? So what is it that he means? He must mean that to follow Jesus, to be his disciple, that Jesus comes before everything else, so much so that it looks like hatred to everyone else. That Jesus is so much first, that second is so far down, it looks like hatred. Does that seem legitimate? Am I stretching the meaning? Am I, am I interpreting the meaning in the light of what the author intended? To understand this as hyperbole? Understanding the literary type enables us to understand the intended meaning of Luke and Jesus in the passage and not the literal meaning. The literal meaning is wrong in this case of what Luke intended. Does that make sense? We interpret the literal as like our starting place, but then we have to know, okay, what genre does this book fit in? What, what type of literary device is being used? And we interpret in light of that. So when Jesus tells a parable about the rich man and Lazarus, he talks about this man who's gone to hell and he, he, he just wants a drop of water on his tongue, we don't interpret that like historical fact didn't literally happen. It's a parable, it's a metaphor. It's a story that's not real. It's meant to convey meaning 
in light of that literary form he used. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking with me? Do I have thoughts? Okay, people have dreamed. Okay, tell, tell me a little bit more about what you mean. So people who have dreams. Yes, 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 yes. What is your question about them, though? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so let's just take Joseph and, and Genesis. Joseph has several dreams. Um, and then, then God gives him the interpretation, right? So not only did God send him the dream, but God gave him the, the cipher by which to understand what the dream meant. So absolutely that, that happened. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that um, somehow like what Joseph said or thought was uh, like the word of God like on the level of scripture, um, but it does mean that this is from God and now God's let him interpret it and it's a God thing. Um, in the same way, Kind of the same way. Um, if Paul, so Paul wrote other books that are not in the Bible. So for example, First and Second Corinthians are not actually First and Second Corinthians. They're, those are the wrong order. They're actually, I want to say it's maybe second and fourth. There's two other books of Corinthians that he refers to, so we know they exist. He refers to his other letters, um, and we don't have them. But if some guy was doing some excavation in Corinth and, and found this lost letter of Paul, we wouldn't put it in the Bible. We wouldn't put it in the Bible. Um, just because Paul wrote it doesn't mean it's the word of God. Just because God gives someone a dream doesn't mean it's the word of God. Um, just because God lays something on your heart. You know, that's God. It's the Holy Spirit doing something. But what I can't do is say, God has told me, guys, y'all need to pay me a million dollars. God has told me, you got to do it. It's the word of God. So, so it's not like that. You know, God can lay on my heart, and you know, I really feel led to go to Africa. And, and that's God leading me, right? But what I can't say is, hey, God has told me you gotta go to Africa and you must obey. If not, you're disobeying God. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. Good. Other questions? I, I got like two thoughts and I'm gonna be done. Who determines the meaning? The author. Over the next few weeks, what we're going to be learning is to how do we figure out what the author meant when he wrote it. There's one meaning, might be many implications, maybe a lot of application. So that's our rule for today. That is really an introduction to the topic of hermeneutics in the weeks ahead, notebook, Bible, and um, we'll be learning some more rules and things that help us look, learn through that. We got a few minutes. Questions? Yeah. Yes. For communi written communication to happen, there has to be an author, a text, and a reader. But only the author determines the meaning. Yep, that's good. Anything else? It's a little hot in here. Is it hot in here? No. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me make sure there's two ways. How do we know who did that or how do we know that's how it happened? Uh, two, a couple passages. Uh, is it 1 Timothy 
that men were carried along. Um, let me get it right. Men, as men, men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Second, is that Second Peter? Let me pull up a couple. All Scripture is God breathed. They are pneumatos. Um, let me just look them up. Hang on. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. Okay, so I didn't just do it. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is probably the main passage we get this from. Um, and then the Second Timothy or First Timothy? Second Timothy three sixteen, I believe. And then two Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuke, correction, training, righteousness. Yeah. So, if all, so those two thoughts. All Scripture is breathed out by God. So you have the idea of the Holy Spirit, who is the breath, the ruach. Um, and so it's the Scripture. It is the Spirit writing it. But you know, we also know man wrote it. And then we know that any prophecy or scripture is not willed by, hum, by a man, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I think those are the, the two main texts I would go to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're not. You know, another passage that comes to mind would be like um, when Peter is telling, he's talking about Paul's writings. He says, you know, you've read Paul's writings, and he says they're hard to read, they're hard to understand. He says, as are the other scriptures. So I think at the beginning, they didn't really, no, they weren't necessarily saying this was the scripture, this was the Bible at that time. When Paul's writing the letter to Timothy, he's just sending him a letter. Just, and he sends other letters that don't make it into the Bible. Right? So he's just sending this letter, he's just sending them out, and then they get copied and circulated and it's not till later, and, and, and Peter at, level, at some level begins to understand, no, these are scripture. But it's not till later that it's determined which ones are and which ones are not. And we'll talk about that later. Um, and so I, I think the reason we would say they're not in this um, trance state is because it's just kind of these normal dudes writing letters. Um, and they don't necessarily see it that way. Everybody's just seeing it as, oh, yeah, we got a letter from Paul. Here's what he's saying to us. Does that make sense? I can try to get a better answer for you, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like their voice. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You wouldn't be able to tell a difference between Pauline grammar and Luke grammar. Like, they would, they would be flat, but we can tell Luke is much smarter than Paul. You can just tell by the way he writes and the grammar that he uses. And so you wouldn't be, if you're right, if, if they were in a trance like saying God was just doing it, it would be God's level of grammar, not these different kinds. That's a good point, too. Yeah, we'll talk about that in another lesson, but sh- sh- the short answer is Council of Nicaea? I think it's Council of Nicaea. Well, I would say it wasn't meant for everyone to hear because if it was meant, then God would, I would say God used these, this group of people to determine which books needed to make it in and those books that made it in are the ones God wanted in it. 
So at some level, we're having faith and trusting that God was working through men, not only to write the Bible, but to organize the Bible. <clears throat> I think that's a slippery slope because uh, you could easily become a Mormon, right? right? And Galatians says, even if an angel from heaven gives you another gospel, let him be an athman. So um, I think that gets real dangerous. You know what I'm saying? Um, maybe, like, here's what we would do. If we unearth the other Corinthian books, we'd read them and we'd study them and we'd kind of compare them. And they might be on some level sub-authoritative, um, like in, the, in a similar way of like the creeds are sub-authoritative, but I don't think they would ever get put into the book. But there's a big debate around that, so. Good. We got like two minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the, um, the um, oh, what's it called? The, uh, the Catholic middle. Apocrypha, thank you. We don't think that's authoritative. We don't think it's in the Bible. Um, but they're helpful. You go read Second Maccabees, it's helpful to understand the intertestamental period, what's going on before Jesus shows up. Helps you understand why they thought this guy was supposed to come and lead a revolution against the Romans. All right, we will make it colder next week. It's when I close the doors. Well, there's vents in here. All right, guys, love you guys. Bibles, notebooks next week. Later.